and just to remind you of what we're, where we are, what's going to happen the next couple of weeks. Uh, next Sunday, Amy and I are going to be in Chattanooga. Gabrielle is graduating from the Chattanooga Fellows Program, and so we're going to go be there for that. And then we have this event happening October 8th, and so there's some stuff for that apparently we got to go do other than just write checks for things. And so uh, we're going to be there. And then the next weekend, Memorial Day weekend, uh, we will actually be with uh, Nathaniel. He is now at a stage in his training where they will let him leave base. And so we're going to go see him over Memorial Day weekend. And uh, so that's where we are going to be the next two weeks. Now, uh, what that means is that next Sunday, Isaac Terwilliger, who is the Minister of Youth and Families at Grace Chapel in Lincoln, is going to be with us. Uh, it's also a weekend that Bryce is going to be with us. And then the Sunday after that, that's still sort of TBA. I got a text Saturday morning uh, from Andrew Leitner letting me know that his father had passed away. He's been in Pennsylvania with family. And so we're still, he's going to let me know if he thinks that being back and being in the pulpit would be a good thing. Uh, if not, there's a young man named Owen Worst, who we recently licensed in our presbytery, and Owen will be filling the pulpit for us that particular morning the, on, during a Memorial Day weekend. Also then, the Sunday after that, we're going to start in the Psalms. And so this morning... Uh, as we get to verse 21, if you have a pencil or a pen, if you're a, a Bible marker, just go ahead and put a little dash there, because when we are done in the Psalms this summer, we will pick up in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, and we will continue sort of meandering our way through Luke's gospel. So let's read together this morning, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means." And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who, has an ears, who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. 
And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and produce fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, we come to you on this day. We know um, it is the Lord's day, first and foremost. But it's also this holiday that the greeting cards tell us it's good to honor our moms. Now, it is good to honor our moms. And so, Father, we pray this morning, first of all, a prayer of thanks. A prayer of thanks for the life that you have given us through our mothers. And, uh, Lord, we pray this morning, knowing that for some, this day is a wonderful day. It's a day uh, full of really good and warm feelings and thoughts and ideas. But for others, today is not such a great day. Lord, for some, it's a day in which they are reminded that their mothers are no longer with us. Father, for some, they had moms who uh, were not good. They were not Proverbs 31 kinds of moms. And Father, there are some who had a desire to be a mom, but that desire was never fulfilled. And so, Lord, we pray today that your gospel would be a salve to us. We pray today that you would comfort us through the good news that you proclaim to us in and through the life and ministry of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All moms are provocative. Sometimes provocative in a good sense, sometimes provocative in a not good sense, but always mothers function as agent provocateurs. A mom can provoke her children to things that are not helpful. She can indeed provoke them to anger, shame, and all kinds of other reactions that are not God-honoring. But moms always have a unique ability to make their children think to really stop and consider what it is that they are doing. Or perhaps, as I often heard with my little brother, exactly what do you think you're doing? Good moms don't just dictate and direct. But at a certain point in their child's life, they force them to learn to think and to consider for themselves. But always, 
moms are provocative. In that way, a mom is like one of Jesus' parables. The parables are intentionally provocative. Jesus tells us these stories to make us pause and carefully consider some aspect of our lives. As one scholar put it, in the parables, Jesus is putting a rock in our shoe. Well, as we've been making our way through Luke's gospel, we've noted the good doctor's melodic line, namely, that the gospel is for everyone. That does not mean, however, that everyone will accept the gospel, or that everyone who thinks they are a gospel person is really a part of the people of God. I hope you noted this morning that there are two very distinct groups to whom Jesus is speaking. There are his disciples, and then there is in verse 4, a great crowd. So what really distinguishes the crowd from the disciples? Well, in our passage for this morning, we learn something very important about the people of God. And what we learn is found for us in our big idea. It can be found in the outline on page 5 in the bulletin, and here it is. Jesus provocatively locates the people of God in the perseverance and proclamation of the word of God. Jesus provocatively locates the people of God in the perseverance and proclamation of the word of God. So, three points we want to make this morning. We want to note first what John is doing as he gives us a kind of top and tail to this text. In both instances, he's referencing people who are with him. Or he's referencing people who seek to get his attention. And so in verses 1 to 3, we learn something about the nature and the character of those who are really and truly the people of God. And we note first that those who are God's people are actually going to be with Jesus. In verse 1, we're told that as Jesus is going out through cities and villages, as he's proclaiming and bringing the good news of God's kingdom, his 12 disciples are with him. And it isn't, isn't just the 12 disciples, but we're going to see also there are women who are a part of Jesus' entourage as he travels from place to place, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So someone who is a part of the people of God is someone who is with Jesus. The disciples have left everything to literally walk with Jesus. The structure and order of their everyday lives are determined by where their master wants to go. They're not on their phones at the beginning of every day saying, hey, Jesus, uh, traffic in this city looks pretty good. Yelp gives this restaurant in Capernaum a really high rating. Why don't we go there today? No, it's Jesus who sets the agenda for those who are with him. Jesus tells us it's actually the will of God the Father that is setting the agenda for what he is doing. It's the Spirit of God that drives and dictates where it is that Jesus is going to go. 
Now, we cannot literally physically walk with the Lord Jesus Christ because he has ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. But we can, as those who are Jesus' apprentices, we can model every aspect of our life after Jesus. We can walk, as it were, the Jesus way. Now let's understand, that's going to mean that we don't merely think about our relationship with Jesus as a Sunday thing, and then live the rest of our lives as everyone else around us does. No, being a part of the people of God and being with Jesus means that it's not merely the life of Jesus that resides within us, but we're also called to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. This isn't just something that is internal, that's in our hearts, that's on Sunday only. No, we're called, as those who are God's people, to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Well, not only are these disciples with Jesus, but they've also been healed by Jesus. Jesus has an interesting subgroup among his disciples. Luke tells us that there are women, verse 2, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna. Now, I don't think we understand just how scandalous this is. Because in American churches, statistically, women tend to uh, be a regular attender far more often than men. And so when we speak of the Jesus way, or when we speak of the people of God, or when we speak of Christianity, we just sort of automatically think it's more, statistically speaking, it's more likely that women are going to be there than men are. That's a whole other sermon for another day. But what was true, or what is true of American Christianity was not true of Jewish rabbis. Jewish rabbis would have lots of young men following them, but they didn't necessarily have women included among their disciples, among their apprentices. In fact, there were some rabbis who would not even talk to women. And yet Jesus not only talks to them, but he heals them. He casts demons out of them. Jesus invited them to be to walk with him and to be a part of the group that was going through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus has healed their diseases. He's healed their infirmities. Now I realize you might be thinking, Pastor, that's great. I mean, that's wonderful that these people have been healed by Jesus. Uh, I, I, I haven't. You know, when my appendix when my appendix got bad, they just took it out. It wasn't healed by Jesus. Well, I wonder if you know that the word that Luke uses for healed in verse two is the same word that the rest of the New Testament uses for salvation. See, the Greek word soteria can mean either save or heal. So if you're here this morning and you've been saved, please understand it also means, in, in, in the Bible, it also means 
that you have been healed. In fact, salvation is the deepest and most profound kind of healing that we can imagine. It's a relational healing, whereby our relationship with God has been, is being, and will be fully restored. So if you are a part of the people of God, really, then know that you are included in that group because you have been healed. Christ has restored you. He has made you whole. Where there was once enmity and hatred between you and God, that enmity and hatred has now been put aside. You are healed. You are saved. You are ransomed. You are fully restored. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that the gospel, the good news we talk about, is not merely fire insurance. It's not merely something that you put in your back pocket and hope that someone in your family finds when you die so that everyone can feel good and say nice things at your funeral. No, the gospel is an announcement that a relationship that was once horribly broken has now been restored. And that folks who were once dead in their sin and in their trespasses have now been made alive together with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we who were once spiritually blind can now see, and we who were once spiritually deaf can now hear. To be saved is to be healed. And it's to experience the restoration of a relationship that would not be possible any other way. See, it's not just this thing you have that you keep for a rainy day. Rather, it's this most important and fundamental relationship fully and completely restored. Well, we see also that those who are really a part of the people of God, those who are Jesus' people, are those who are invested in Jesus. This group of Jesus' apprentices has a rather interesting source of funding. It's the ladies. Furthermore, we're told that one of the primary donors of this particular ministry is a woman who should have every reason to stay miles away from Jesus, and Jesus should have every reason not to want anything to do with her. Look at verse 3. We're told that Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, is not only among the group of apprentices traveling with Jesus from place to place, but she's also helping to support them financially. She's funding this traveling group of wanderers. And so we need to understand this morning that Joanna, whose husband Chusa is the director of operations for King Herod and his household, we need to understand that there's more going on here than just a financial investment on the part of a wealthy woman. Joanna is risking her reputation and the vocational security of her husband. 
Let's remember, Herod is claiming to be king. Herod holds a position of authority under the Romans who are occupying Israel. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is of the line and lineage of David. And so for Joanna to be with Jesus, for Joanna to be counted among the among the followers of Christ, and for Joanna to be investing financially and supporting financially the ministry of Jesus is really risky. Not only is it putting her in a bad situation, it's putting her husband in a tenuous position because she's risking. She's risking the displeasure of Herod. A displeasure that would fall not just to her, but would fall to her husband. And you have to wonder, Jesus, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus, uh, who said there's none greater than John the Baptist, I mean, how excited could Jesus really be about having a woman from Herod's household in his group of followers? And yet, here they are. She's invested her reputation. She has invested her future. And, oh yeah, by the way, she has invested her money in following Jesus. And then at the end of this particular uh, series of, of, of stories, one of the things that Luke likes to do is he, he will clump like stories together as he's making a point. He begins with telling us who's in the crowd. And then in verse 19 to 21, he says again, we have the crowd mentioned. And yet again, you have people who want to see Jesus who can't get in because of the crowd. And oh, yes, by the way, it just so happens to be his mother and his brothers. Now, we think it's his mother and his brothers because at this point, uh, his father, Joseph, is dead. And the word that they're, that's used for desiring indicates they have a sort of urgent need. They really need to see him. But they can't get to him. And so as Jesus is told that his mother and his brothers are there, he responds not in a way that we would expect a good Jewish firstborn son to respond. For you see, historically, it was understood that the oldest son in a Jewish family would be charged with taking good care of his mother if the father is out of the picture and deferring to her wishes. And that would have been seen not merely as something that's good culturally to do and expected to do in Jewish households and in Jewish families, but it also would have been seen as a moral imperative. How is it that you honor your father and your mother? Well, if you are even a Jewish male, an adult Jewish male, and your mom is alive, you defer to her. You take care of her. You make sure that she is well met. There was an interesting survey done several years ago among uh, Middle Eastern men who had recently moved to the United States. And the question was this. Uh, you're in a boat. The boat's going to capsize. There are three of you. You can only get rid of one person. Now, the obvious answer, of course, is that the guy jumps in the boat, but that was not an option. The option was this. You have your wife and you have your mother. Which one are you choosing? 
I see wives looking at their husbands. Uh, 79% of Middle Eastern men said, my wife is going in the water. Culturally, the expectation is you take care of your mom. That's the most important relationship that you have. Even your relationship with your wife, the mother of your children, takes a backseat to your relationship with your mom. But Jesus says that no family, who's a part of his family, who's a part of the people of God, it's not defined by blood kinship, but rather by hearing and obeying God's word. Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Look at what he says in verse 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus is saying, listen, being a part of the people of God doesn't come about by blood kinship. It's going to come about through the word. And when we put all of it together, we see that Jesus is painting a very vivid and a very different picture from what the average devout Jew thought it meant to be a part of the people of God. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about genealogy. It's about the relationship to Jesus himself and his word. The people of God are those who are centered upon Jesus and centered upon his word. It's to that word that Jesus turns his attention in verses 4 to 15. Luke keeps the agent provocateur train rolling full steam ahead. Jesus now tells us a parable. As we've said, the purpose of parables was to provoke the audience to think, to pause and to reflect. Jesus is putting a rock in their shoe. He's trying to make them uncomfortable. He's trying to force them to think about things in a way that they had not before. And so Jesus tells a story about a sower. The sower is doing what sowers do. They sow seed. And the only difference in the parable is the response of the soil to the sower and the seed. Notice he doesn't say anything about how the sower throws it more skillfully in one place, or he throws more seed, or he includes a little bit of fertilizer, or that the seed that grew on the good ground was actually better seed. The other stuff he knew was going to get choked out, and so he used kind of Kmart brand seed. No, the sower is the, the same. The seed is the same. The difference is the soil. So here's the rock that Jesus is putting in our shoe. What kind of soil are you? Which of the soils are you? In each instance, the word of God has an impact. In each instance, there is an enemy to the seed that has a say. In the first instance, it's Satan who comes and who takes the word of God away. In the second instance, you receive it with joy, but in a time of testing, they fall away because they have no root. In the third instance... It's the cares and riches and pleasures of life 
that choke out the seed. Only in the last instance are those who hear the word, he tells us in verse 15, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. There's a 75% failure rate when it comes to bearing good fruit with patience and holding it in an honest and good heart. So which kind of soil are you? Now, please understand, this is not Jesus trying to burden us with unrealistic expectations. Great. Now I got I got one more thing to do. I got to go be good soil. Seriously, like I'm already I got to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. I got to love God. I got to love my neighbor and my neighbor is a complete jerk. Really? Jesus, you're going to give me one more thing I have to do. Well, please understand that persevering in this way and holding fast to the word in an honest and good heart and bearing fruit with patience, please understand that this isn't something that you can do in and of yourself. It's not a question of trying harder or doing more. It's not the spiritual equivalent of playing the theme from Rocky and running up the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum. No, please remember that if you are indeed one of God's people, then the Spirit of God dwells within you. And that your heart of stone has been taken out and been replaced with a heart of flesh. God's Spirit has done this. And so the honest and good heart that is required... God has provided for you. And it's interesting, isn't it? He says, bear fruit with patience, because the Apostle Paul tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Or consider the words of Jesus, or the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 6, when he says, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Friends, this call to persevere is not a work for you to do. It's not something for you to try harder at. But understand that the call to persevere is something that God is working in you. If you are indeed one of his people, then you will persevere. And I hope you understand that what's going on when Jesus phrases it this way and when he positions the parable in the way that he does, what he's really doing is he's giving us an opportunity for great comfort and clarity when you die. Not for you, but for those who love you and care about you. I got a text, as I said yesterday morning, from Andrew Leitner. Uh, and he said... Uh, the first one was, dad died this morning. And then he sent me another text and said this, my dad went to be with the Lord this morning. What a wonderful gift it is. Through the kind of perseverance that Jesus is talking about, 
when the Spirit of God and the work of God who began a good work in you and will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful gift it is then to know the kind of soil that you are. And so please, please, please don't shy away from Jesus' question. Don't give stock religious answers. Don't merely say, well, I was baptized. Wonderful. I've memorized a lot of Bible. Wonderful. I go to church. Great. These are all really good things. But ask yourself the question, what kind of soil am I? Thirdly and finally, then, we see that there is a need if, if those who are indeed bearing good fruit, part of that fruit is we're going to actually let it be known. Verse 16 to 18, he gives us this wonderful parable from which we all sang growing up, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And note, we see the provocativeness of Jesus yet again. Look at verse 18. Take care then how you hear. Hey, don't just walk away singing this little light of mine and think you're good to go. He's calling us to examine our lives. He's calling us and reminding us that, listen, you cannot be a Jesus follower in secret. And we say, really? Yeah, in fact, the Gospels tell us about two secret followers of Jesus. One of them was named Nicodemus. The other one was a wealthy man who was a part of the council known as Joseph of Arimathea. The gospel writers tell us as they record the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the need to go bury him somewhere. They tell us that these two men who were, and the authors note sort of parenthetically, were secretly following Jesus. Now all of a sudden they can't remain secret anymore. Somebody's got to come get his body. Well, who in their right mind is going to want to come get the body of this guy who has been scorned by the religious elite and crucified by the Romans? Jesus is a spiritual and a political train wreck. Don't come within 500 miles of this mess. In fact, it's so bad that his own followers have fled from him. And what do the gospel writers tell us? You know who came to get him? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They prepare his body. Joseph gives up his tomb. And the secret followers of Jesus take their light and they put it on a stand so that everyone can see it. Friends, living as the people of God is not easy. The world thinks we're crazy. Jesus himself tells us that there's only, out of four opportunities, only one of them's any good. There's a 75% fail rate. On top of that, we get weary and we get tired. 
There is a reason that the cares of life can choke out the life of the gospel that is within us. And sometimes this kind of provocation, this gospel provocation that Jesus gives us, it's hard to hear and it's hard to process. And so this morning, there's good news. This morning, you need to know that God invites us to eat. He invites us to just sort of pause and to be spiritually nourished, to be strengthened, to be refreshed, to come to the table, to take and to eat and to taste and to see that our God is good. He is always provocative and he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for the rock that you're putting in our shoe. Thank you now for the table in which you call us to be strengthened, you call us to be sustained, you call us to be refreshed as we feast spiritually on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.